Good morning, Christ Church. Today's sermon text is from the book of Malachi, starting in verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Pray together. Father God, it is a joy to gather with your people this morning. God, we just praise you that we have the freedom to come together and to worship and to fellowship, to be in your word. God, to sing together. Let us not ever take this for granted, God. We pray this morning that your spirit would open our hearts and open our eyes and our minds to your word, God, that your living and active word would bring transformation. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Who's, who's excited about the book of Malachi? Yeah. We read a little extra, than, more than we're going to get into, just because I wanted you to get a feel for it on day one. There's a lot there, and, and so right at the outset, I'll just say that I'm aware that there's probably a lot of people in this room who have never read the book of Malachi, right? I mean, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. That's just a reality, and it's okay. When we sit down in, in the Word and we're like, hey, I want to read something super encouraging, we typically don't go to the Old Testament prophetic books, right? They're not always super encouraging. I mean, it is the Word of God, but these books can be confusing. They can be hard. And honestly, sometimes they're just depressing and pretty rough to get through. But this is the Word of God, and it is for our encouragement. It may be the Old Testament. It may be rooted in the time of law, but for us, the veil has been lifted. We are no longer blind to God's redemptive work through the law and through the prophets. See, the law was given to expose the reality that no one will be proclaimed righteous through works of the law. So that people might look to God for mercy. As we read in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. We know this. So when we read Malachi or any Old Testament book, we are reading through the lens of Christ's sufficiency to save to the uttermost. 
always. And so with that said, I want to begin by looking at where this book kind of lands on the, in the timeline of redemptive history. Malachi is old. It was written over 2,400 years ago to the people of Israel. And as you know, the people of Israel were both a nation as well as the church in the Old Testament. They were God's chosen people, his children, and God had promised that they would be a great and mighty nation, that all the earth would be blessed through them. He said that through their family line would come a deliverer, the Messiah, and an eternal kingdom would be established through him. They were a people and they were a culture that is vastly different than ours today. But their struggles with faith, their struggle to grasp the magnitude of God's love are strikingly similar to our own. They knew God's promises, but the pressure of life, the influences of society around them, and the deception of sin had caused them to continually doubt God's love, to continually doubt God's promises, and even to question his goodness. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about God's people as they struggle to trust God, as they await this coming Messiah, but struggle over and over with faith. Because like us, they are not very good at waiting. They are impatient and prone to doubt. One moment, they're praising and worshiping God, and the next moment, they're melting down all their jewelry to make a golden calf, right? Miracle after miracle was performed in their midst, and then they sit and they watch as Aaron fashions this calf out of their jewelry, and they bow down and worship it. It's crazy, right? What's wrong with these people? But then how many times do we, do we go from God is all I need on Sunday to trying to fashion a golden calf out of our possessions on Monday, right? Metaphorically speaking, unless you really have a calf. That's weird. But insecurities, discomfort, fear, anxiety, they can so easily tempt us to look to other things for comfort to look to other things for hope because we don't like discomfort. We don't. And there is a prevailing message in our culture that if we are uncomfortable, then God must have removed himself from the situation because God would never want us to be uncomfortable. Time and again, God would act powerfully and miraculously, delivering his people from danger and hunger and oppression, and they would love him and worship him for a little while. But over time, their love would wane. Indifference, resentment, they would just set into their hearts. At the first hint of discomfort, they would begin to grumble to God through Moses. Why did you lead us out here? Why didn't you just leave us in slavery in Egypt? That was better. Grumble, grumble, grumble. You see why this book is so good, right? How many times do we look at God like, where are you? Where are you? So Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. 
So there's a lot of history between the time that Israel was wandering in the desert and when this book was written. And we obviously can't go through all of that history, but a basic framework is after wandering in the desert and then the establishment of the judges, the tribes of Israel were united under the reign of King David. But obviously after King David died, things went south real quick. Israel eventually split into these two warring nations during the reign of Rehoboam, which was Solomon's son. So the northern kingdom, known as Israel, which consisted of ten tribes, just slipped further and further and further into idolatry. And as a result, God brought the nation of Assyria into the north to judge them in 722 B.C. They took all the people away and they repopulated and renamed the land Samaria. And the multi-ethnic people that came out of this repopulation was the Samaritans, right? And we know them from the New Testament. Don't like them. We, we love them. But the Israelites had a great disdain for them. But then there was the southern kingdom known as Judah. And it kind of limped along in and out of idolatry for another 115 years until... Judgment for them. In 605 B.C., God used the nation of Babylon to come and judge them. And they carried many of the inhabitants off in three successive exiles. And then the Babylonians broke through the walls of Jerusalem and burned the city and the temple to the ground. But God told Judah through the prophet Jeremiah, that despite their idolatry and infidelity, I'm not going to break my covenant with you. I love you, and I'm going to deliver you from exile. He told them in Jeremiah 25 that you will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years, but after 70 years, I will bring you back. And that's exactly what he did. At the end of 70 years, God brought the people of the southern kingdom back into Jerusalem and under the leadership of Ezra, they rebuilt the temple and a short time later under Nehemiah, they rebuilt the walls around the city so things were finally getting better. All these things that they'd longed for and asked God for were happening. The temple is rebuilt. The city walls are now there. But even though their situation was improving... And they were experiencing God's faithfulness and love. They slowly slipped back into apathy towards God. Life was still hard. They were still under the rule of a foreign nation. They thought that once the temple was built, the, the messianic age where they would flourish and rule would begin, but it hadn't. As God's chosen people, they expected more from God. And from their perspective, he hadn't come through for them. And this is really where our book picks up. After 70 years of exile, they are now living and worshiping in a rebuilt Jerusalem inside of their rebuilt temple. And it shouldn't be a huge surprise at this point that they are not overflowing with gratitude and praise. God addresses his people through the prophet Malachi because they were going through the religious motions, but their hearts were far from him. 
They were offering second-rate worship, second-rate sacrifices, and second-rate love to God and to others. This book was written a long time ago, but it is a message that speaks so clearly in our day, just like it did then. Because it's so easy to look at our lives at times and lose sight of God's love. To find ourselves going through the religious motions while our hearts are occupied with everything but God. We can so easily look at our circumstances in any given moment when things are hard and think that God is not living up to his end of the bargain. As if there were a bargain. So... Over the next 10 weeks, as we walk through the book of Malachi, we're going to explore the topics of love and worship, leadership, relationships, proclamation, justice, stewardship, remembrance, and fear. And how each of these things should be genuine in our lives, not half-hearted, not forced or faked. God doesn't need your service or your money or your attendance record. He wants your heart. So we're going to jump into the book and we are not going to get very far, but we're going to kick it off. Verse one, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. It's good. The, the oracle of the word of the Lord. And so this word oracle literally means burden or weight. It was the burden of the word of the Lord that was upon Malachi. This is what it means to be a prophet. This is not Malachi saying, hey guys, I've been thinking about this for a while. Like, Here are my thoughts about the current state of Israel. That's not, not what's happening here. As we read in 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So throughout the Old Testament, God used prophets as messengers of his word. They were men through whom God communicated directly with his people. And sometimes, oftentimes, the message was burdensome. It was heavy. It was God's word to his people and it wasn't always encouraging. If you read about the prophet Jeremiah, he had a pretty rough life. He did not get like the sweet prophecy gig. He was the guy prophesying the destruction and the captivity of Judah before the 70 years. He's like, hey, this is what's coming. But take heart, after 70 years, God's going to bring you back. But nobody wants to hear about how after your exile, you're coming back, right? Nobody likes that guy. It doesn't make for an easy job when you're called to inform everyone of imminent destruction, especially when the majority of prophets are actually prophesying falsely. So the other prophets are telling the people, no, 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 that's not what God's saying. Everything's going to be great. God just wants to bless you right now. Just keep bringing your money. God's going to bless you. And Jeremiah's like, no, this is the word of God. And if you read in Jeremiah 20, he's honest with God about how cruddy his call is. 
We should learn to pray from Jeremiah. Sometimes, here's Jeremiah's prayer. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. He says, oh Lord, you have deceived me. He said, cursed be the day that I was born. That's some honesty. You can pray like that. God knows already. This was how heavy the burden, the oracle of God's word was upon Jeremiah. This is what it meant to be a prophet of the Lord. As Jeremiah says in verse 9, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot. He cannot help but speak the word. You see, when God calls you into ministry, it is a calling into a joyful burden. There is joy. Being used by God and seeing him work produces much joy, but the burden is that you are being called into following Jesus to the cross, to laying down our lives so that others might find true life, that they might take up this burden as well and follow Jesus. So Malachi was a guy. He was just a guy who was called by God to carry the burden of his word to the people of Israel. And as I mentioned earlier, this is the last book of the Old Testament. This is the final word to his children before 400 years of silence. 400 years of no revelations, no new books, no prophecy. When you start reading in the Gospel of Matthew, 400 years has passed. So where will God begin in this final book before a really long silence? What will God say to these people who are struggling with faith, who are apathetic and greedy and selfish? He's going to deal with all of those issues inside this book, but where will he start? Here's God's first statement to his children in verse 2. He says, I have loved you. This is how God begins. I have loved you. And the power of this Hebrew phrase is, is somewhat lost in translation. It's not just, I've loved you, but I have and I do. It's a, a proclamation of a love that is rooted in the past, but equally as powerful in the present. I love you and I have always loved you. So the sovereign God of all creation looks down on his children who are doubting and struggling and grumbling about him and begins this book by saying, I have loved you. This is the God who spoke creation into existence, who upholds the heavens, the God who knows the number of stars and the inner workings of every human soul, and he says, I love you. And imagine how much better your marriage would be if every time your spouse confronted you in anger or accused you of wrongdoing or was just generally frustrated, you began your rebuttal with, I love you and I have always loved you. Is that how you roll? Show of hands? Maybe. That's how God rolls. 
The love of our God is starkly different than any other religious system or teaching in this world. Every other religion in some way is founded on you, your works, your goodness. It's about what you can do to earn God's favor. It's predicated upon you and your actions and your righteousness. They say, if you obey, if you serve well enough, if you are good enough, then God may love you. God may approve of you, but keep going, right? Because you can lose that at any moment. But the God of the Bible, the one true God says, I love you and I continue to love you, and because I love you, you will obey me out of that love. Your obedience doesn't compel God's love, but it is God's love that compels obedience. Do you see the difference? It's the gospel versus religion. Religion is like a man who walks into an orphanage full of kids and says, I'm going to observe all these kids for a while and adopt the best one, right? It's like we're going to get a dog. But the God of the Bible walks into the orphanage and says, I'm about to adopt a lot of children, rebellious, defiant, and sinful children. And I'm going to love them, and my love is going to transform them. See, the entirety of scripture points to the reality that God didn't pick you because you're awesome. Sorry. I know that may be hard for some to swallow. All your hard work, all the achievements, all the great things that you've done. You think God is choosing people like your glory days in middle school PE, right? Dodgeball phenom. Maybe that's you. That's cool. Or maybe you're like me, like last one picked always. You can't imagine a God who could love someone with such dark, sinful, troubled history. You look at all your struggles and failures in your life and you say, there's no way God would accept me. I am not worthy of his love. But that is the beautiful thing about the gospel. God is in the business of redeeming sinners. So if you think you're not worthy of him, you're right. Welcome. That's why it's called the gospel of grace, unmerited favor. In the midst of our rebellion, in the midst of our hatred towards God, he declares his love for us. He pours out his grace and he adopts us as children. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we're going to dig deeper into that next week, but the point is this, God did not choose you because you are great. He chose you because he is great. And he says, I love you. And my love will bring transformation. So, how do we respond to that, right? That's just the first sentence, phrase. The God of all creation knows you and loves you personally. He has adopted you into his family. He proclaims his love and well, what do we say? And we love you as well, Father, right? That was not their response. Here in verse 2, God says, I have loved you to his children 
and they say, how have you loved, have you loved us? How, how exactly? God says, I love you and I've always loved you. And they basically are like, nah, not seeing it. They accuse God of failing at his duty as father. They accuse him of being unloving. They accuse him of saying one thing and doing another. It's not good enough, God. I mean, don't you just want to slap them? Yeah. It's crazy. We read this, and it's shocking that they would be so bold as to challenge God's love. But then, if we're honest, we kind of do the same thing sometimes. I know you love me, God, but I'm not feeling it right now. If you really love me, you know, that job thing would work out. You'd heal that loved one. You'd make my life less stressful. You'd mend that broken relationship. I'm not feeling your love right now. See, the Israelites were struggling financially. They had an economic downturn. Their nation was in political unrest. They struggled morally. There was rebellion and anarchy, sin and pain all around. These were the people of God. But they were looking at their finances and their nation and their lives and saying, if God loved us, things would be better. If God loves me, why am I broke? If God loves me, why is life so hard? If God loves me, why can't I get ahead? If God was good, why is our world so messed up? God already knows your heart. So you might as well be honest, right? Jeremiah showed us. Might as well be honest. We've all had these feelings at times. And some of you may be feeling this way right now. The reality is that grumbling children is nothing new to God. He loves them. Look at the history of Israel. God uses Moses to free them from slavery. They grumble. Parts the Red Sea, pretty epic. They grumble. Water comes out of rocks, grumble. Food from the sky, grumble. Rebuilt temple, new walls. What are we going to do? Let's grumble, right? It's easy to be so consumed with our current circumstances that we are blind to the hand of God in every aspect of our lives. We can easily miss the fact that our entire life is a testament to the grace and the mercy and the love that God has for us. We're like often this child that's been adopted by a loving father. We live under his roof. We eat his food. We enjoy his blessings. And we know that we have a promised, lavish inheritance. Our very existence and future is a testament to his love. And we crawl up in his lap and slap him in the face. And we say, you love me. Prove your love to me today. How does our loving father respond? What does God say when his children whom he loves and protects time and again question his goodness? His response is epic. It's one of the, the greatest truths of all time, hidden inside one of the most argued and debated texts in the Bible. And that's what we're going to dive into next week. But for today, 
I want God's declaration of his love to soak into our hearts. I want us to think honestly about how we respond to his love. And if you're unsure about God's love for you, open up his word. Hear what he has to say to you. Come to him in prayer. Talk with your small group or your small group leaders or grab one of the elders. God doesn't want you to keep going through the motions of religion. He wants a love that is genuine. He wants a love that is a response of a heart that has experienced his love and beheld his glory. When we truly grasp the love of God for us, it will transform everything. The way you live, the way you work, the way you spend your time and your money. God says, I have loved you and I love you now. And God's love is never just words. Ours probably is often. His is always connected to his actions. They're never separate. 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, as love manifested. He didn't just declare his love to us, but he poured out his love by sending his son to die on the cross so that we might be united with him and with one another for eternity. God came near, he humbled himself, and died so that we might live with him. That is how much God loves you. Pray God. God, we repent for our grumbling, for our nearsightedness. Sometimes we act like ratty children. God, we thank you that you are a loving, gracious, merciful Father. We ask that you would make us a people who are captivated by you. Through your spirit, you might open our eyes and our hearts to the magnitude, to the length and breadth of the love you have shown us in Christ. God does not take such a great salvation for granted. Let's not minimize your love in our hearts. Draw us into your love. 